Hello and welcome to the Ask the Geographer podcast series from the Department of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. I'm Harry. In each podcast, I'll meet geographers from around the world to ask them about topical events, timely publications and geographical research. Today we're joined by Ginny Reddy, the author of Wonderland, a travel writer and author who is described by Melissa Harrison as warm, open-minded and endlessly curious. The book has been received very well with widespread acclaim, with Robert McFarlane stating what a wonderful book Wonderland is, and it's been long-listed for the UK Nature Writing Wainwright Prize. Thank you for joining us today, Ginny. Can I start by asking you to summarise your book? Thank you for having me, Harry. Um, So the book is about my search for magic in landscapes across Britain. It's been described as having an eco-spiritual edge. It blends travel, nature writing and memoir. And it also touches on themes of uh, identity and belonging owing to my multicultural upbringing. I guess you could say in a nutshell that I was seeking a more spiritual or more transcendent dimension to my roaming and that set me off on a rather unorthodox trail across a number of counties everywhere from Cornwall to Scotland uh, and countries I guess if you're including Scotland um, from Northumberland to Wales and various places in between. And what inspired you to write the book? Well, I'd been a travel writer for a long time and um, I'd had opportunities to meet people from indigenous cultures. And I was always struck by the way that for these people, it was perfectly natural to enter into a reciprocal relationship with a sentient, animate nature. And I found this fascinating and compelling And I wanted to know if it might be possible for a regular person like myself to experience uh, a glimpse of this kind of relationship or or, or a deeper communion with with landscape and nature. Um, But also I'd had this um, uncanny experience up a mountain in the Pyrenees a few years ago. I was uh, while camping and fasting alone on a kind of um, solo quest, a kind of vision quest inspired experience. Um, and I heard a strange voice one night, and and I got very curious, and so I guess I wanted to explore a bit more. And that deeper communion with nature that you mentioned that um, that starts with your mountain journey, doesn't it? That's the anecdote that opens the book. Yes, it does. Yes. And during the whole book, um, you are in pursuit of the other. Is is that you searching for identity? You talked about the book having an eco-spiritual edge a moment ago. What does your pursuit of the other mean? Well, I needed to to roam. I wanted to immerse myself in the, the simple physical beauty of a natural landscape. But I also wanted to connect with, I think, the divine in the landscape. Um, And I think these things are not easy to talk about because spoken language isn't the language of the spirit or the language of the heart. And I think at the time I was asking myself, you know, what do I mean? Do I mean some benign umbrella presence in nature that I somehow knew was there and that was on my side and waiting to be invoked or the sentient essence in every living thing? But at the same time, I was also 
exploring my own feelings of otherness, and I do this with quite a light touch, I think, in the book, owing to my multicultural background and, and, and not always feeling at the centre of things, but feeling peripheral and marginalised sometimes. Is that sometimes difficult to convey to others? At one point, I just remembered in the book, you talk about trying to explain one of your journeys to another travel writer, and he's a bit uh, dismissive or finds it a bit unusual. Yeah, I mean, trying to describe how I travelled for Wonderland, um, I've come up against this sometimes. And because I wasn't relying on a map or a compass, I was using what I call my inner compass. um, And I put my faith in the power of intention. I used my intuition. I practiced deep listening. And and to try to explain these things to people, sometimes they would just say, well, what do you mean? You just rock up somewhere and be a bit spontaneous? But it it wasn't the same. I was almost traveling as a pilgrim might. Could you tell us about your upbringing and how you feel it might have influenced the way you see the world? Um, these are quite unusual ways to travel with an inner compass and in pursuit of deep listening. I wonder, is it related to your your experiences through life? Um, well, I was born in London. I was raised in Montreal, Canada. And my mum and dad are Indian. And they grew up in South Africa during the apartheid era. I've always been interested in magic and mysticism. Um, There are healers in my family. My grandfather on my mother's side, I'm told, used to perform exorcisms. So the unseen world, I guess, um, has always felt very natural to me. But also just, you know, being rooted in more than one culture, I think I've been gifted with the ability to see the world through more than a single pair of eyes. And I'm more inclined to adopt a, a global perspective. So I think whenever I read about an issue, I think about the lens through which I'm reading about it. Um, For instance, if we're talking about conservation and the protection of spaces in countries abroad, I'm I'm always wondering, you know, what kind of a stake do the local people have in this? Um, People who have stewarded the land for centuries peacefully, you know, conservation for the benefit of who? So... I think it's just the ability to see things um, more widely through a wider wider field of perception in lots of different ways. You mentioned there that you now can see the world through uh, more than one pair of eyes. Where did your love of nature come from? Well, when I was seven, uh, my family moved to Canada and we arrived from London. Um, I, I was born in Wimbledon. Um, we arrived in the Laurentian Mountains and in the middle of a blizzard, and I remember being quite shell-shocked. And our home, our first home in Canada, was on the edge of a village. And it was more of a settlement, really. And our backyard was a kind of snowy wilderness. Um, and then a year or two later, we were living in a Montreal suburb. And I had the St. Lawrence River at the end of my street. And there were rapids. And I used to go there uh, pretty much every day. So... There is all that, but also the Canadian seasons are so defined, um, they're so characterful, they're so much a part of life. It's it's impossible not to feel connected to nature while never actually consciously thinking, oh yes, nature. And you know, we had a garden, a lovely one full of vegetables. My dad was really into fishing and uh, my parents grew up in South Africa, and, and my mom lived in a rural setting for part of her childhood. 
she would talk about mangoes and guavas and papaya growing in the backyard and, and foraging and fishing, but not for fun, but because she and her brothers and sisters um, needed to eat. So I think all of that had, a, had a, an influence and um, inspired my, my love of nature in a very organic way. Living in Canada, uh, Ginny, sounds absolutely idyllic to me with the river rapids, as you said, at the at the foot of your garden and with the seasons and the blizzard that greets you when you arrive. I wonder if all Canadians feel that 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 connection to nature. Well, I can't speak for all Canadians, but I think it's very much in the Canadian psyche. So returning to, to geography, why did you study geography? Uh, did you study it? high school in Canada and did you enjoy it? Um, so I did my BA in geography um, in Montreal at, at McGill University. I studied geography because from a young age I wanted to see the world and I thought that I'd be wor- learning about world cultures but at the time I was kind of disappointed to learn that geography was more about physical geography and cloud formations and cartography which I was pretty hopeless at and the cultural geography tended to be focused very locally on Quebec culture, as I recall. I remember going on a field trip to look at fence styles in rural Quebec and thinking, this isn't really what I had in mind. Um, but I did enjoy political geography. And that's that's now articulated as geopolitics, I imagine. Um, I guess, yeah. Long time ago. <laughs> So that is a, a very varied background. So you, you grew up in Canada and Britain. You've studied in France. Am I right in thinking you've also worked in Georgia and in the capital? And you've also been to Japan? Um, well, I've, I've traveled to over 60 countries as a travel writer. I've, I've lived in France, studied in France. I taught English in Tbilisi in the Republic of Georgia. I lived in Hong Kong for some time. Um, I've lived in London now for a long time. So I've, I've lived in a few different places and I've visited many more. And where do you call home out of that list? Um, I, I actually love this question and I love this question more and more. Um, and I think about it a lot these days. On one level, I live in southwest London, so I'm a Londoner. Um, but when I'm in Canada, I have this feeling of the past rushing up and um, of my childhood self surfacing again and and half my heart is there so I feel a real pull to Canada but at the same time in Canada I'm also aware of being British Um, whereas in the UK countryside I definitely feel like an outsider partly I think because I didn't grow up there and partly because I see very few people who are Asian or black who who look like me uh, people who look like me in the countryside and you know, this, my parents have this Indian ancestral heritage. So when I go to India, um, it's, 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 it's a gorgeous experience, but it's also slightly disconcerting because everybody looks like me, which is unusual for me, but um, I'm also not entirely of the culture. So I don't know if I have an answer to, to where is home. Home is, is inside, somewhere inside me, I guess. What are the old ways? And... Why, in your opinion, are they so important? Well, I'd say the old ways are really just the ways of people from indigenous cultures and a more shamanic approach to life, a more reverential approach to life. It's putting sacredness at the heart of our relationship with the natural world. There is a cultural historian, his name is Thomas Berry, and he's an influential figure in the Earth spirituality movement. 
he saw humans as one expression of the earth and he believed that in order to heal the earth, we need to recognize the sacredness of every other expression of the earth, whether it's an animal or a tree or a bird or a flower. And he, ble he believed that all of us together form this symphony of species and that we're all just part of this sentient earth celebrating herself through us. And he believed that be beyond the appearance of natural phenomena was this intelligent, animate, sentiment, sentient force, kind of cosmic world full of mystery and power. And he felt that if we as humans could see that there was both a visible and a cosmic world, we'd have a far richer and a far more meaningful existence. And that we'd lost this, this connection to this deeper reality of things and that we live in a world where little is sacred or holy and therefore it's much easier to destroy the earth. So I think all of this is synonymous with what the old ways are. It does feel that people move very quickly in life nowadays. Um, I guess a lot less so now we've, we've gone through a global pandemic, but um, in, in that speed of movement, people do lose connections to nature. Connection to nature, connection to ourselves, our own nature. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have a favorite journey when you were searching and roaming for, for, for that deeper connection, that communion with nature? You talk about um, your, your mountain journey, your anecdote. You have uh, a visit down to Cornwall in search of a labyrinth, a trip to Iona up in Scotland or to find a spring in Hastings. Um, well, I think uh, when I went to Iona... You know, it's a long, it's a long journey to get to Iona. It's twelve hours, um, so there's a bit of commitment involved in, in in going there. But there was an unfolding of synchronicities on that trip that just, to me, felt gorgeous and enchanting. So I'd made no plans, and I trusted that uh, I was drawn to going there for a reason, and then that reason would become clear. And I really put my faith in this idea. And on the train up, I had an email from an acquaintance in Bath. And he said, well, if you're going to Iona, you should look for a temple in the land and you should ask yourself, uh, in what dimension is this temple? And I was thrilled when I received this, this email and I thought, that's it, I have a mission, that's what I'm going to do. So I went to Iona and I spent four days trying to find and to reach this temple of the land, whatever it may have been. And I asked around a lot, you know, and I kind of felt like this amateur sleuth um, and each time I was met with a kind of resistance. And I think on the second to last day, I decided just to let it go and just to enjoy the island um, because I was becoming frustrated. And, I'm, and it's a beautiful island. It's a place of pilgrimage. It's a place with pristine beaches. It's a place where a woman on her own can feel very comfortable. So I did that. And then on the last day, I was in a cafe and I I bumped into an American woman I'd met briefly a few years earlier at a conference. We got chatting and I told her what I was up to and she suggested that we try to find this place together. So as we left the cafe, she bumped into a woman she'd not seen for a couple of years. And this woman was going for a hike and unbelievably she was going for a hike to this land temple. And, and, and my jaw just hung open um, at the, the coincidence of this, the, the way these these things had manifested and she offered she offered to take us there and she did and I felt very powerfully that on some mysterious level um, something in a way that I couldn't explain with my rational mind but felt very true to my heart and to my spirit that I'd heard you know that the, the sincerity of my desire had been acknowledged by some animate 
force of nature on the island. And, and that was a very powerful thing for me. I wonder if all those old phrases that we use, um, such as the stars have aligned or it was meant to be, explain that in the past people have felt that too and that's where these colloquialisms come from. I think it is all all the same. Just We just have different expressions, as you say, for these things. We all feel them at different times in our lives, but we may not necessarily have the language for them. You mentioned that uh, you decided to let it go at one point um, and and it didn't seem like you were going to find the Temple of the Glen in Iona. Do you think you always need to find what you were looking for on a journey? Um, no. I think... Uh, I think if you're traveling as a pilgrim or with this openness of spirit, I think the journey itself can be the destination. And I think we have to let go of expectation and go with the flow, which is not always easy. And expectation doesn't always meet reality. And I try to be very honest about that uh, in the book. Throughout the book, you increasingly uh, learn to listen, I think you say, um, as, as your story progresses. Uh, is that key to pursuing the magical, mysterious, and to understand nature, do you think? Uh, to understand the spiritual dimension of nature, yes. I think, um, I think deep listening, tuning into our intuition, having uh, the, the sincerity of our intentions, the depth of our desire. Um, our empathy, our trust that the path will unfold, and openness of spirit, all of this demands a slowing down. It demands time and, and moving into our hearts and away from our minds. So, so yeah, I think, I think listening, deep listening, is, is absolutely vital to living life in a more creative way, generally. And as an extension of that question, um, if you are in pursuit of deep listening and if you've managed to to achieve that is stillness uh, a peaceful setting the main ingredient that allows you to do it um i think so when we we don't have distractions when we give ourselves time to decompress i think definitely that enhances that state of being yes when you're on Iona, um, you talk about um, energy um, can you explain um, what you meant about the energy of the island um, and c could you also uh, explain what a landscape energy expert is so um the guy who sent me the email was his name is anthony thorley he is based in bath he's a scholar uh he's a he's a charming man and his area of knowledge isn't easy for a beginner like myself to grasp but it has to do with a belief in the in in the I suppose broadly speaking, in the sacredness of certain landscapes and attuning to the spirit of a place and um, what he would call the genius loci. And, you know, the feelings of wonder and awe that we experience are a way of expressing the kind of um, essential mystery and the powerful effect that these places have on our consciousness. So these are, we're talking about, I guess, places that feel sacred um, for different reasons. It's interesting you mentioned wonder and awe there and, and the different expressions that people find 
in and from the landscape. As a, as a mountaineer, uh, the book that really resonated with me was the description of you uh, flipping between lowliness and then rapture when you're by yourself in nature. And I've often experienced that when hiking alone. Do you have any bits of the book that stand out to you? Um, well, I think Iona, as we discussed, but also this um, springs in a wood in Hastings. And, and the way I came to it was through you know, bona fide treasure map and the springs was the treasure. And it was a map that was passed on through word of mouth. And it was created by this man who described himself as this wild woodsman. I think he said he was working on a wing and a prayer and he had a hunch this spring existed and he'd labored for months in all weathers in the hopes of finding it. And he cleared it and he called it a miracle and he spoke of it as a, as a healing place. So I really wanted to go and find it. And I think I wrote in the book that the fact that it was in Hastings is kind of proof to me that a landscape less ordinary doesn't always have to mean, you know, maneuvers in a rugged, remote place. It could be camouflage and hiding in plain sight. And when I eventually did find the springs, I didn't I didn't find it um, the first time I went for, you know, reasons that are explained in the book. But the second time I found it, it was it was absolutely magical and I, I just felt this overwhelming urge to, to, to take all my clothes off and, and jump in. And I, I did. And I'm not, I'm not somebody who does that very often. And this was in a woods in Hastings. It wasn't that remote, you know, so I kind of had to trust that no dog walkers would go past. It's a lovely free moment of the book. Um, but, you know, I mean, there were so many experiences in the book that were fascinating. And um, something that I don't get asked a lot about and which I don't, generally talk too much about was that this walk I went on with a woman who is a she's a university professor and she guides um, people who are unsighted in the landscape and so I went on a walk with her you know with my eyes closed and it got me thinking about landscape and how we perceive it and how we when we read about it we're often reading about it through the lens of somebody who is sighted who has vision you know and it was it was very interesting that my perception of landscape altered so radically on that walk i bet it did what a fascinating experience i actually thought um a moment ago to ask you if any stories or uh journeys didn't make it into the book that were shortlisted to go in okay um so there was i think i was going to go to the the quietest place in britain and and then somebody said to me well the quietest place in Britain, I think it may have been somewhere in Northumberland. And they said, well, the actual location is actually not very nice. <laughs> you want to actually enjoy it. And I thought, well, no, maybe not. And then in Cumbria, I think I, I wanted to go and visit the fairies in Cumbria. And, in, you know, I don't have a car. And so it was a real practical consideration. I just couldn't figure out how I would coordinate this and how I would get from A to B. And it just just was starting to feel really challenging and so in the end I let that I let that go and then the other one I think I wanted to go and visit all the yew trees in Wales there was a kind of yew tree trail and again I don't have a car and I thought how am I going to do this in one weekend I just don't think I can maybe that's a subject for a whole book <laughs> so that leads uh, neatly into my last question what do you plan for the future uh, you finished the book by saying that you're going to aim to listen harder? Um, I think by listening harder, I mean applying that to life generally because I think 
creativity, you know, living life creatively is a listening and a receiving as much as a doing. And I want to live my life in this way. And and so I guess for me, it's about trusting and trying not to become impatient when plans or ideas aren't crystal clear. Um, For instance, I have an idea for another book and it involves long haul travel. But of course, we're dealing with a pandemic. So I'm, I'm not, I have no idea what's going to happen. It's kind of up in the air. So I have to keep asking myself the question, you know, what do I do with this? How do I approach this? How do I resolve this? And just waiting and listening and hoping for inspiration. It's been so interesting today. Thank you so much for joining us, Jeannie. And good luck for your future adventures. Thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed speaking to you, Harry. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the Ask the Geographer podcast series on iTunes and SoundCloud.com. Be inspired and stay informed with the Society's wide range of resources, many of which are free. School membership unlocks access to other excellent resources, including online lectures and many other tailor-made benefits for teachers and students. Access our resources at www.rgs.org schools.